episode five of Inside Your Head, the podcast and blog that explores psychology, mental health, neuroscience, self-help and related subjects. I'm your host, Henry Hyde, and this is a clip from today's main interview. What I realised is the progress it took me months and years to make, some of those benefits could be achieved in other ways. Some of them could be achieved by applying that psychology with the ancient wisdom and that six sigma to look at what does the process need to be to allow this to work. So this really has been my passion is, oh my goodness, this worked for me. Took me about four years to get there. How can I help somebody else do it and say four days or four weeks? That clip featured the voice of Claire Yosa, who is a specialist in imposter syndrome, which you may recall that I mentioned in the introduction to episode four. Uh, Claire and I have actually uh, known of each other and had contact with each other for a number of years now, owing to uh, uh, something to do with the business world a few years ago. But this is the first time that I've actually managed to sit her down and get to have a proper chat with her. And our chat ranged far and wide from the German language to yoga to meditation to Six Sigma engineering quality control to market research uh, to getting out of your own way when you're trying to achieve stuff, leadership, and of course the most important thing, dealing with their latest book, which is all about getting rid of imposter syndrome. So stay tuned for the interview coming up shortly. For this episode of Inside Your Head, I thought I'd uh, introduce you to another book that I found extremely helpful uh, during my uh, mental health crisis earlier this year. Uh, the book's called Emotional First Aid, Healing, Rejection, Guilt, Failure and Other Everyday Hurts by Guy Winch, PhD. Um, and it's a reasonably substantial paperback. It's about 300 pages. If you take off the uh, the index and uh, notes section, it's probably about 260 pages, something like that. Packed full of good stuff, I have to say. Um, the title might sound a bit kind of glib, Emotional First Aid. But I tell you, he makes a really good point in the introduction. He points out that... Um, if we were to suffer any kind of physical injury, like you fell off your bike and scraped your elbow or you banged your head or you've come down with a cold or flu or something like that, any kind of physical ailment or injury. Most of us, after you know, fairly early on in childhood, have a pretty good idea of how to treat that injury or ailment or to recognize if all oh, that's a oh, I think you've broken your arm we need to call an ambulance and get you to hospital when it comes to our emotional traumas the point he makes is mm, we're not so hot at that are we beyond saying oh they're there you'll be fine it'll be okay oh don't worry <laughs> that's the problem that actually uh we're pretty rubbish most of us at giving real assistance to other people in our lives on the emotional level uh, even if we know them extremely well let alone ourselves so what he's done is he's taken seven primary emotional traumas that are common that we that we all suffer at one time or another Rejection, loneliness, loss and trauma, guilt, rumination, failure and low self-esteem. And he gives 
a pretty substantial chapter to each. And what he does is he starts each chapter by discussing the nature of the problem and then goes on to make suggestions about how to treat that particular psychological wound. It's a very effective format. And so each each of these uh, things, rejection, loneliness, loss and trauma, guilt, rumination, failure and low self-esteem gets a section all of its own. So uh, what I've done is I've got, you know, those little post-it notes that you can just stick in the margin, sticking out the edge, little tiny ones. I've done that with my chapters. So if anything comes up in the future, I know where straight to go. Um, let's take a look at one of the chapters in reasonable detail so that you can get an idea of how the book works. Let's look at rejection. Um, and he says, of all the emotional wounds we suffer in life, rejection is perhaps the most common we finally get through the gauntlet of childhood rejections only to discover that an entirely new array of rejection experiences awaits us as adults. It's true, isn't it? I'm sure we can all remember, well, most of us can remember, being at school and, oh, can I play? Can I play with your kiss chase football tennis game, whatever it was in the playground? No, you can't. We've already drawn up the team. And you're left on the sidelines. That's horrible isn't it? Or in the classroom where you've got a board game that say, oh, can I can I play Monopoly or whatever? No, uh, everyone's, you know, all the streets are taken. Uh, it's all been allocated. No, you can't play. And of course, that continues in life in different ways. Probably not so much, can I play in a game, but much more like, will you go out with me? No. Or can I have that job? No. Yeah, there's lots of ways of getting rejected, isn't there? Being made to feel like an outsider. Uh, and he says some rejections are so severe that they create deep psychological gashes that bleed profusely and require urgent attention. Others are like emotional paper cuts that sting quite a bit, but bleed only a little. We drastically underestimate the pain rejections elicit and the psychological wounds they create. And he explains about the type of psychological wounds caused by rejection. Rejections can cause four distinct psychological wounds, the severity of which depends on the situation and our emotional health at the time. And I'm sure we've all experienced this if we're feeling good about ourselves and pretty pumped up. Uh, rejection might be like, OK, water off a duck's back. Never mind. At other times, if we're feeling rubbish, that same rejection could be crushing. Specifically, rejections elicit emotional pain so sharp it affects our thinking, floods us with anger, erodes our confidence and self-esteem and destabilises our fundamental feeling of belonging. When left untreated, even the wounds created by mild rejections can become infected and cause psychological complications that seriously impact our mental well-being. When the rejections we experience are substantial, the urgency of treating our wounds with emotional first aid is far greater. This not only minimises the risk of infections or complications, but also accelerates our emotional healing process. And... Uh, I'm sure this is true, you know, if, if um, in our own experience that if we feel comforted 
either by you know what we do ourselves or by the, the actions of the, and words of the people around us fairly quickly, it really can soften the blow. Whereas if we find ourselves stewing in our own juices for quite some time, things can get much, much worse. Um, he goes on to say, what separates rejection from almost every other negative emotion we encounter in life is the magnitude of the pain it elicits. In fact, brain scans show that the very same brain regions get activated when we experience rejection as when we experience physical pain. So you're not making it up. You're not imagining it. When that person says, no, I don't want to go out with you, or no, I don't love you anymore, and I'm going. That feeling you had of a punch in the gut was absolutely real. You were not imagining it. You were not making it up. And I know this. I know that uh, when I had my break earlier this year, I had moments where I physically found it hard to breathe the pain I was enduring was intolerable and I'm sure that you've had similar experiences of course it also affects not only you know creates physical pain it affects our thinking rejections impact our ability to use sound logic and think clearly in other ways as well for example merely being asked to recall episodes of acute rejection was sufficient for people to score substantially lower on subsequent iq tests tests of short-term memory and measures of reasoning ability and decision making Romantic rejections are especially potent when it comes to scrambling our brains and tampering with our good judgment, even when they occur extremely early in a relationship or indeed, he says, before a relationship as such even exists. And moreover, rejections often trigger anger and aggressive impulses that cause us to feel a powerful urge to lash out, especially at those who rejected us, but in a pinch innocent bystanders will do mm, perhaps we can all feel a twang of guilt about that even the most inconsequential rejections stir up highly aggressive tendencies in the best of us unfortunately our tendency to respond to rejection with anger has far darker and more serious manifestations as well when psychological wounds of this nature are left untreated they quickly become infected and threatens serious damage to a person's mental health. Uh, an interesting quote he gives here as well. In 2001, the Office of the Surgeon General of the United States issued a report that found social rejection to be a greater risk factor for adolescent violence than gang membership, poverty or drug use. Feelings of rejection also play a huge role in violence between romantic partners. Um, then he talks about damaged self-esteem. Experiencing profound or repeated rejection is extremely harmful to our self-esteem. In fact, the mere act of recalling a previous rejection is sufficient to cause a temporary drop in feelings of self-worth. Unfortunately, the pounding our self-esteem takes rarely stops there. We often compound our rejection experiences by becoming extremely self-critical, essentially kicking ourselves when we're already down. 
Responding this way is common, but it can easily cause the psychological cuts and scrapes of the original rejection to become infected and consequently to have a truly debilitating effect on our mental health. We all have a tendency to take rejections too personally and to draw conclusions about our shortcomings when there's little evidence that such assumptions are warranted. Think back, even way back, to when you were rejected by someone romantically. Did you find yourself listing everything that might be wrong with you? Did you fault yourself for not being attractive enough or sophisticated enough or smart enough or rich enough or young enough or all of the above? Did you think, this always happens to me or no one will ever love me or I'm never going to find someone? Personal rejections are rarely as personal as we experience them to be and even when they are, they rarely involve such a sweeping indictment of our flaws. In addition to unnecessarily personalising rejection, we also tend to overgeneralise it even when we have no grounds to do so, he says, or to engage in needless self-criticism by assuming we could have prevented the rejection had we done something differently. Self-criticism is especially problematic following romantic rejections, as many of us spend hours analysing everything we said or did in a desperate search for our elusive, critical wrong move. In reality, critical wrong moves are exceedingly rare. The most frequent reasons we get turned down as romantic prospects or as job applicants are because of a lack of general chemistry, because we don't match the person's or company's specific needs at that time, or because we don't fit the narrow definition of who they're looking for. Not because of any critical missteps we might have made, nor because we have any fatal character flaws. These errors in thinking serve little useful purpose, he says, and they only deepen the pain we already feel by adding unnecessary and highly inaccurate self-recriminations that further damage our already battered self-esteem. Rejections hurt enough. We certainly don't need to add salt to our own wounds or kick ourselves once we're already down. And... He goes on to say one of the reasons our self-esteem is so vulnerable to rejection is that we are wired with a fundamental need to feel accepted by others when our need to belong remains unsatisfied for extended periods of time, either because of the rejections we've experienced or because we lack opportunities to create supportive relationships. It can have a powerful and detrimental effect on our physical and psychological health. Then, having kind of discussed the problem in quite a lot of detail and pretty accurately, I'd have to say there, he moves on to talk about how we can treat these symptoms and, and solve the problems. And he talks about general treatment guidelines and he does this in every chapter. So in all these categories, you know, of rejection, loneliness, loss and trauma, guilt, rumination, failure and low self-esteem. In this chapter, he talks about uh, the fact that rejections can inflict four distinct emotional wounds, each of which might require some form of emotional first aid, lingering visceral pain, anger and aggressive urges, harm to our self-esteem and damage to our feelings that we belong. 
Uh, and he then talks uh, in general terms about the specific treatments. Some of the treatments that follow are effective for soothing more than one type of wound, while others are more specialised. Uh, the treatments are listed in the order in which they should be administered. Uh, treatments A, managing self-criticism, and B, reviving self-worth, primarily target emotional pain and damaged self-esteem, while treatment C, replenishing social connections, targets threatened feelings of belonging. Each of these three treatments is also beneficial for reducing anger and aggressive impulses. Treatment D, lowering sensitivity, is optional as it can have uncomfortable emotional side effects. So then he talks about those specific treatments. So treatment A is argue with self-criticism and counter-arguments for romantic rejections. Um, and he, for example, he, he gives um, uh, an exercise for arguing with self-criticism. One, list in writing any negative or self-critical thoughts you have about the rejection. Two, use the following self-criticism counter-arguments from a variety of rejection scenarios to formulate personalised rebuttals to each of the self-criticisms you listed. Feel free to list more than one counter-argument per self-critical thought when it's relevant to do so. And three, whenever you have a self-critical thought, make sure to immediately articulate the relevant counter-arguments fully and clearly in your mind. So in other words, stop beating yourself up. Uh, so, for example, he says, after 20 years as a psychologist in private practice, I've heard countless tales of romantic rejection, both from those doing the rejecting and those getting the heave-ho. People reject romantic partners and prospects for many different reasons, most of which have nothing to do with anyone's shortcomings. Most often, it's a simple matter of chemistry. Either there's a spark or there isn't. Rather than reaching unnecessary and inaccurate conclusions about your faults, consider these alternative explanations. Perhaps the person prefers a specific type that you don't fit, uh, for example, or the person's ex has re-entered the picture, or they might be going through some sort of crisis at home or in their personal life, or you might simply be a poor lifestyle match, for example. Uh, it's also possible you're too good the person in some way uh, who knows maybe they you strike them as being too virtuous the other person might have commitment issues and tend to run the moment they feel another person is getting too close or they might have self-esteem issues and worry that if you're interested in them there must be something wrong with you <laughs> there we go I mean, you have to laugh because, of course, it's true. Timing can be a critical issue as well. Uh, you might be looking to settle down. The other person isn't, for example, and so on and so forth. So he gives a lot of perfectly sensible, good reasons why the relationship just isn't going to work at that time. Wrong person, wrong time, wrong place. That's so often the situation. And he goes through similar very calm, logical explanations as to why you might get rejected in the workplace. You might not get your promotion. You might not get that job. And it's almost always got nothing to do with you specifically, certainly nothing personal. And if it is something personal, you're in the wrong job, working for the wrong people, OK? Um, uh, in social circles as well as friendships and social circles usually nourish our belonging needs but they can also be the source of extremely painful rejections uh, one of the situations I hear about most is when individuals discover their friends have been meeting up without them but sometimes our social groups recognise we've outgrown them even before we do um, so when it comes to self-criticism 
Then he talks about the treatment summary. Dosage. Administer whenever you experience a rejection and repeat as necessary whenever you have a self-critical thought related to the rejection experience. It's effective for soothing hurt feelings and emotional pain and minimising damage to self-esteem and has secondary benefits of reducing anger and aggressive impulses. And he goes on and does the same with treatment B, reviving your self-worth and gives you exercises for, for making that work. Treatment C, replenishing feelings of social connections and the good advice here is find new affiliations with a better fit for your life or have social snacks as he calls them uh, which may include um, photographs of loved ones are one of the most emotionally nutritious snacks we can consume after being rejected uh, photographs are not the only social snacks with nutritional value other experiments found that merely recalling positive relationships or warm interactions we've had with our nearest and dearest was sufficient to reduce the amount of aggression people felt after being rejected. Uh, then the final part of this chapter is about desensitizing yourself and he does uh, similar things for all those different categories of uh, emotional wound, rejection, loneliness, loss and trauma, guilt, rumination, failure and low self-esteem. This has obviously just been a rattling whistle-stop tour of of just a part of this book but i just want to heartily recommend it to you emotional first aid healing rejection guilt failure and other everyday hurts by guy winch phd it's available in all the usual formats uh, from all the you know all good bookshops as they say if you wanted to have one book on your shelf that would cover most of the things you're likely to encounter as emotional uh wounds and trauma in your lifetime then i would just have to say you could do far worse than having this book on your shelf worth every penny um go and read it folks uh that's what i would say okay well i hope you found that interesting and if a little breathless <laughs> so now we're going to go to the main interview featuring myself talking to claire yosa Hi everyone and welcome to the interview section of Inside Your Head. Today I've got someone on the show who I have to confess I first had dealing with, oh crikey, five or six years ago I think we've worked it out, yep. under completely different kind of circumstances uh, back in the days when uh, I was uh, quite heavily involved with the Alliance of Independent Authors and Claire here came along taking on nothing less than the European Union <laughs> uh, in what came to be known as the EU VAT shenanigans which is probably far too obscure for most of you listening and I won't bore you with it. I even I even wrote a little booklet called EU VAT Pay Attention or Face a Fine. Those were the days. Uh, it was all about standing up for the small business. And as you're here today, Claire is 
a real champion's champion. She's really quite something. And she's got an awful lot to say about an awful lot of stuff that's really, really interesting. So without further ado, let me introduce Claire Yosa. Hello there, Claire. Henry, it's so lovely to get to talk to you here today. And I still can't believe we've not met in physical life. I feel like we've shared such a journey over the last yeah. six years, yeah? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and in fact, you geographically don't live massively far from me. I'm in East Sussex uh, in down the bottom, and you're in kind of East Sussex up the top right corner, aren't you? So we've had no excuse, really, not to get together before. But there you go. That's life now. Claire, I've, I gave you a bit of introduction and probably the audience are shaking their heads going, what is he talking about? But for self-employed people and micro businesses going back you know, five or six years, actually, the topic was incredibly important. This is all, of course, sadly, pre-Brexit, uh, when it was all extremely relevant and everything's kind of been thrown up in the air again now. But hey, it was very important at the time. But Claire, you are a really interesting person. I think people will immediately pick up on the fact that you've got a bit of a twang in your voice that you know adds to the, the air of mystery. So tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself, where you're from originally, and a little bit about your early life and education before we get into the real meat of the thing. Of course, so originally born in Hampshire, part Italian, um, grew up in Hampshire and Surrey uh, and the States, lived in El Paso for a while with my parents. Wow. Then I studied mechanical engineering and German at uni because I wanted to do German and Russian and thought that would be too easy. Yeah, just don't ask a 17-year-old about anything, yeah? <laughs> I also wanted to know why car engines, cylinders fired in the order that they did, and my A-level physics teacher couldn't tell me. So I thought, well, I'll go and find out. I did 15 years in engineering, specializing in Six Sigma. So that's designing for quality, taking... Right the excess steps and fluff out of processes, right. which I still apply in my work today. Then I went to become head of market research at Dyson, which was great fun. It was that link between the engineers, the marketing team, the customers being the three-way translator for them yeah. all. After a few years, I realized I couldn't make a big enough difference in somebody else's business. So 2003, can't quite believe that. I left, I'd become an NLP trainer, I'd studied all sorts of other stuff too, I set up my own business in leadership development, and over the years, I ended up specialising in the dreaded imposter syndrome. Right, which we're going to talk a lot about later on. Uh, what a CV, you rattled through that. Uh, we've got some stuff in common, the German in common, because I'm pretty fluent in German. I, 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 I did my year abroad. I was at Sussex University, did my year abroad in Augsburg. Oh. Uh, so a Bayern, yeah. Uh, so totally different kind of German to me because mine was in Nordrhein-Westfalen up in the north of Germany. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. So you're a Zalpreuss, as, uh, as the Bavarians would say. Anyway, that's for another time. There's another podcast in that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm absolutely sure. That's fascinating. So in amongst there... Um, you've mentioned some things that are really, really interesting. You, you uh, mentioned that you worked as an engineer, mm -hmm. uh, which obviously we're going to come back to because it played a key role in your imposter syndrome experience, you know, from, from what I've read and listened to about you. But in addition to that, you're, you, you do stuff that a lot of uh, my listeners and I myself would find very interesting. You're a yoga instructor and you're a meditation teacher. Uh, 
talk about those a bit and then we'll come on to the NLP stuff because that's a whole subject on its own. So tell us a bit about how you got into yoga and meditation, Claire, and why you obviously took it to the next stage and decided to teach it as well. Well, it wasn't something I'd planned. I mean, I, I did my first yoga lessons at sixth form um, instead of general studies because I really didn't want to have to do general studies. So it was the other option. Right. Um, I taught my first lesson at the age of from 17 because the teacher was away for a week. So she left me running the class. And when she got back, I said to her, it was a fab class last week. It only took me 15 minutes. We had three quarters of an hour spare. And she gave me a look. <laughs> okay now I get it yeah <laughs> so I kind of left yoga and meditation for a decade or two and yeah. then you know the way life goes in these crazy ways that we didn't expect yeah. I ended up having to leave a marriage due to domestic violence I ended up oh, as a single no. mother with two children under the age of three oh, no. and I was losing my mind I was an NLP yeah. trainer the tools I had from NLP were not enough to deal with the anxiety and the stress yeah and the fears about the future and you know not even realizing i hadn't had a day off in a year since my young yeah. son had been born yeah. so i sat there on facebook going i need a break yeah. i just need a break and i didn't even say it out loud the next screen i go to there's an advert for a meditation retreat in snowdonia and someone really? said book yeah. <laughs> okay yeah. so yeah. i did it was a two-day retreat that got me into it and yeah. I met a guy that I assumed was gay, who I've since married, because he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only reason I gave him my number is because I assumed he was gay. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, but that is what got me onto that journey, is being able to connect with the still point inside without turning my legs into a pretzel, without having yeah. to take on belief systems, being able to reach that calm that yeah. means when things happen, like this week, as I was explaining to you before we came on show, where mm. we've moved out for five weeks, the builders meant to do major renovation. They yeah. did a runner last week and left us without a functioning home. Oh. I will still wobble and I yeah. might still cry. Yeah. And I come back to that still point of, right, so what are we going to do yeah. in minutes, not months? So yeah. this is how it has helped me. It's given me that groundedness. Mm. ability to really choose which thoughts to feed mm. and these are the elements of meditation and yoga that I weave into my work so I don't run separate classes mm. teach what you need right there right then to solve that exact problem from those worlds does that make sense Henry yeah absolutely it does and the way you're describing uh your experience with with well, meditation though I'm not a, a yogi but the, with the meditation um certainly for me since I had the cancer and then had a breakdown earlier this year um I think that that's what I've learned. I used to think meditation was some frou-frou, goodness me, what on earth is all that? And here I am now, every one of these shows, I'm adding a meditation to the end of the show, right? Yeah. Be, and demystifying it for people because that's what I realised I needed. I needed someone to say, no, you don't have to sit on a silk cushion in Tibet, Henry. You can just do it sitting in front of your computer if you want, you know. Uh, and there's wonderful things, stuff out there like the Carl map, for example, just mm. absolutely, you know, was enormously helpful. So I'm kind of completely with you on that, Claire. And this absolutely, there have been times when 
uh, you know, I've come close to falling apart again, but now I've got those those tools as you describe them. Um, they are incredibly powerful and useful, mm. and are just there like a. There's a, there's a wonderful book which I've uh, talked about in the introduction to the show, which you won't have heard yet. A wonderful book called Emotional First Aid by a guy mm. called Guy Winch, and one of the things that he points out is that those of us who are you know certainly once we reach adulthood, you know, if you fall off your bike and graze your elbow or you know bash your head or whatever or you know you're you're in the kitchen doing some cooking and you cut your finger with a knife we all know oh that right that needs a sticking plaster or mm. that needs a w- washing and the band-aid put it when it comes to emotional trauma we're mostly useless it's like i have no idea what to do about this rejection or this my low self-esteem or whatever so completely with you on that down i think we're going to come back to this subject but anyway so that's really interesting so your your, your yoga and meditation and i love the way you've met your current husband that's just fantastic <laughs> absolutely fantastic now NLP. Now, this is something, a neuro-linguistic programming is what that stands for, uh, which uh, I think it's fair to say those, a lot of people may go, oh, NLP, what's that? Never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Other people might go, oh, I've heard of that. Where? Do, well, there was a, there's a guy called Paul McKenna. Uh, who was kind of uh, big on the television quite a few years ago now, had a series that was kind of based on neuro-linguistic programming where he was helping people who were in crisis and they may have had certain phobias and this and that, stuff that had happened to them, self-loathing. And he demonstrated ways very concisely that people, to enable people to get over these kind of traumas. It was fantastic. Um, the origins of NLP are kind of a bit more complicated and some people say a bit more controversial, but I'm, because uh, I think at some point I may do an entire program just on the subject of NLP because it's a really interesting subject. How did you come to that, Claire? And what was it that attracted you to the concepts of NLP? So I was already head of market research at Dyson at the time. I'd been yeah. fascinated by psychology since about the age of 14, when my aunt, who's a psychiatrist, gave me a Desmond oh. Morris book on people watching. Um, right. And I was actually at the Market Research Society annual conference where, you know, heads of market research go to decide where they're going to spend their money in the next year. And these yeah. companies have all spent a lot of money to be there. And every single one of them was so boring. And you're just standing there and you're like, oh, God, please don't make me have to go and speak to you. Or please don't come and speak to me. Yeah. And there was this one lady who was juggling. <laughs> oh, thought, really? Right. I'm in. She's my <laughs> kind of woman. And it turns out that she was an NLP trainer. And they right. were there because they saw the value of NLP in market research. Right. So I took a course with her and then another course. And then I decided I wanted to become an NLP trainer like she was. Right. And the bits that really resonated with me were that engineering side. It wasn't so much the therapeutic interventions. Right. It was more things like the Noam Chomsky work on programs, right. motivational traits, because somebody might say, I bought my vacuum because, but yeah. you can actually decode the structure of the words they use to find the true motivation. So this yeah. is pretty powerful stuff. And yeah. then you build that into your copy. Right. But then I realized it could make a real difference. Also, back when Bandlet and Grinder first cemented the concepts of NLP, right. there was a lot of energy work in it right. that they took out to make it more acceptable as a science in the 70s. 
And I realized during my NLP trainer's journey that the energy needed to go back in for it to have maximum impact. Right. This is really, it was the combining of the practical psychology user manual for the brain yeah. with that energy work. So my clients call it engineer approved woo-woo. Yeah, <laughs> because I've gone a long way down that energy teacher healer journey, combining right. it with psychology, combining it with an engineer's common sense, combining it with that demystified ancient wisdom. So right. this is what got me into NLP was realizing the fascinating power of how when we decode our thoughts and mm. then we can use strategies that come from meditation to choose which thoughts to feed right. how we can then unleash our potential and really it is creating breakthroughs in minutes and not months and you don't have to go through therapy and you don't have to stop you can change your life by laughing as well yeah, yeah, yeah. that is really what took me on that first nlp journey was a lady called emily juggling at an extraordinarily boring conference. <laughs> That's fantastic. Listening to you, I mean, uh, one thing that will be coming across the listeners immediately is you're bursting full of energy, Claire. And given the circumstances you just described you're in at the moment, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, and it's, it's infectious. I can see how uh, your presence is infectious. Because I remember when you were doing the stuff with the, uh, the, the EU VAT as well, People just, uh, you're kind of a born leader. Well, you might say, actually, you're a made leader, but that's a, another discussion. But you you do have these leadership qualities where your enthusiasm spills over and people just want to just want to help you, I think, just want to support what you're doing, which obviously is a kind of a magic touch. So hats off to you. Um, it's also the thing that comes across that's of interest to me in the wider context of, you know, the inside your head remit that, you know, I'm, I'm still exploring here. You know, the show can be about anything I want it to be about, you know. But there's a lot in there that you were saying there that I find really interesting because there's clearly, uh, from your perspective, you've, you're definitely on a kind of journey. It's more than just intellectual stuff. Mm. There's, there's a, a much deeper kind of emotional, emotive kind mm. of input going on there. Is that is that something you feel like you were always interested in or is that something you've kind of discovered along the way, Claire? So for me, there's always been a spiritual side to it. Yeah. Mm. And there were many years where I resisted that. And when I say spiritual, I mean connecting with me, but the, mm. not the me that's doing the talking, but the me that's observing the me doing the talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then where my passion comes in is, for example, I spent two solid years studying to become a meditation teacher, having to go on modules every few months, having to practice mm. for up to an hour a day with two screaming children as a single mother. <laughs> yeah, believe me, I found every excuse in the book. <laughs> And then I got to the stage of, look, if I can do that, you can do 10 minutes. Stop yeah. this. What I realized is the progress it took me months and years to make, mm. some of those benefits could be achieved in other ways. Mm. Some of them could be achieved by applying that psychology with the ancient wisdom and that Six Sigma to look at what does the process need to be to allow this to work. Mm. Mm. So this really has been my passion is, oh, my goodness, this worked for me. Took me about four years to get there. How can I help somebody else do it in, say, four days or four weeks? Mm. It's a process of distillation, effectively, that you've been through. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Now, 
And you've obviously used this, your your motivation and the skills that you've learned, because now I think I counted, you've now written eight books, Claire, <laughs> which is... They are so on hold now. <laughs> hats off. But the thing is, like, the, the variety, Justin, is extraordinary. There's like a couple of novels there, or is it three novels? And then the 28-Day Meditation Challenge and a little book of Daily Sunshine and 52 Mindful Moments and a year full of gratitude. Mm -hmm. Which is all, okay, yeah, I can see that's your journey mm. uh, creatively and spiritually happening there. And then there's a step change, and I love the cover of this book, Dare to Dream Bigger, right? Okay. Was, uh, that was the EU Vat Action Campaign. It was. I was going to say, because yeah. you were working on that in that kind of period, weren't you? 2015, yeah. 2016 kind of thing. And all your schlepping backwards and forwards to mm -hmm. Brussels, Strasbourg, London, wherever you were doing at the time. Uh, quite extraordinary. This, uh, Folks, I'll have to I'll put a link to the book, obviously, in the show notes. The cover is just gorgeous. There's this massive, great kind of golden dragonfly uh, against this purple background it's just beautiful and as a cover designer i'm saying that as well that's it's a beautiful piece of work and the thing is this kind of is where clearly you had moved into this space where you felt confident enough to put yourself in front of business leaders and and people like that and say look you know yeah Right. And and you'd kind of because um, for a lot of people, I mean, we're going to be talking about imposter mm -hmm. syndrome. Right. For a lot of people, that's like, whoa. <laughs> so tell us about the inspiration behind that. Tell us about what had kind of been happening that made you feel like, OK, I'm ready to move on and do this kind of thing now. So it was the EU Vat Action Campaign. Um, there was a very small group of us co-leading that campaign. Mm. And one of the things that we did was we broke every rule, every way that you're meant to lobby, that you're meant to campaign, we mm. didn't do. We made a very clear mm. decision right at the beginning of this is gonna be a positive campaign. People yeah. might wanna complain about what's going on and we totally honor that, but not holding the space for them to do it because we couldn't mm. cope with that, yeah? yeah? You said earlier about how, you know, becoming a leader through doing something like this. One of the things I knew from my meditation teacher training was that when you've got a very big energy, because it takes a lot of energy to hold mm. a group like that, you have an enormous responsibility to keep your vibration high. Mm. Because if I'd gone in the group to have a bit of a bitch and moan, 10,000 people would have joined in. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of negativity to clear. Yeah. So a lot of what we did, I trusted my intuition very deeply. Mm. Um, the most important keynote that I gave, which was at the European Parliament, I was sat there on the train with Jules on the Eurostar saying, mm. I'm not giving a presentation. I'm going to tell a story. It feels mm. mad. I'm going to do this. It was the pivotal presentation that turned around the entire campaign and got the decision makers on board because yeah. I trusted my intuition. I used mm. a lot of the principles from energy work, from getting out of my own way. You know, we felt hugely responsible for people's livelihoods. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My youngest son was a babe on my hip at the time, about three years old. It was, we, we rewrote the rules on how do you change the world? And I wanted to bring together everything I'd taught about, you know, how to change your life 
into a seven-step guide to change the world, run a campaign, grow a business. Mm. For example, one of the things that we realized is the doing, so the creativity, mm. what am I actually going to do? That comes at step five, not step yeah. one, where most of us put it, yeah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to, I suppose I wanted, I definitely wanted to teach what we've done and how and why. Mm. But also by writing the book, it helped me to learn what we've done and how and why. So I could really take those lessons. Mm. And now in my soul-led leadership work, this is what I teach. Those mm. seven steps are the framework for what I teach. And if somebody reads Dare to Dream Bigger, what they'll find is it's actually based around the ancient yogic concept of what's called the koshas, the five types of body that we have you know the physical right. the emotional body the energetic body the wisdom body so the intuition and then finally that connection with self so the mm. whole book is actually i even use those words and people don't bat an eyelid yeah yeah <laughs> so it's about how to yeah we can all go and sit in a cave and meditate well we can't but we could yeah 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 <laughs> But what do you do in real life if you're busy and you're juggling loved ones and responsibilities and COVID and work from home? I wanted to create a, pact, a practical guide that applied those practical and spiritual principles to everyday life for people who are allergic to fluff. One of the other interesting things in there uh, is uh, the, a word that's now occurred a number of times in our conversation, spirituality, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people get a bit twitchy about all oh, spirituality. I don't know about that. And, and something I realized that uh, it, the journey I've been on, um, I, I mean, I'm not remotely religious. Let me make that absolutely clear. I basically, I'm a, I'm a signed up, you know, loyal card holding atheist. But I would also describe myself as a spiritual person. Mm -hmm. And the more that's gone on, and certainly since I've had the cancer and I've been doing more meditation, I've been reading some really kind of heavy books about, there's, there's a woman called Tara Brack, mm -hmm. uh, and I've just finished reading a book of hers called Radical Acceptance, which is something I've been um, practicing, doing my best to practice for all kinds of reasons, which I'll talk about in a future show. Uh, but this is challenging stuff i mean there's there's i mean i'm sure you know this there's this kind of light fluffy all nice and relaxing meditation meditation and then there's another kind of meditation where in a sense you're if you're you know with practice and it's not an immediate thing mm -hmm. but with practice you're able to kind of step outside yourself and, and see yourself in a different way and I think that's really interesting because of the way that you're incorporating spirituality into business stuff i think a lot of people would be sitting there going oh does not compute does not compute you know what kind of reception do you generally get claire do you find that people are a bit kind of oh, oh, squirmy and oh i don't know about that or do you find that because of the context in which you're presenting that that actually it's more readily accepted so i find it depends entirely on my intention if I'm presenting it to somebody and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, they're going to reject this. Guess what they do? If I'm standing there just going, I'm actually totally grounded in this today, they, mm -hmm. they get it. And what I think is there are so many billions of people out there who mm -hmm. could benefit from my work. Mm -hmm. But I really want to focus on those people who are ready to take. And it's not a spiritual journey. It's about I'm going mm -hmm. to reconnect with who I really am. 
yeah. and make this difference I'm here to make. In the yogic world, it's called Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A. I'm going to follow yeah. my path, do my duty to my soul. Mm. There's so many millions of them out there. I need a few. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody yeah. else just glazes over and then I just, it's fine. I just had to let go of my fear of rejection yeah, yeah, yeah. sharing the message at that depth. And this is going to tie in nicely with you know what what we're heading towards because um one of the interesting things is you know people listen to you now and you're brimful of confidence and i'd have to say kind of joy about what you do which is just wonderful it's so refreshing and we've touched on creativity and uh uh dan holloway who i interviewed in the previous show I'm sure he's going to be fascinated to hear, you know, he'd probably be writing, what does she mean? It comes at stage five or whatever. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's going to be some interesting conversations springing from this, I think. because And for me as well, as someone who is a creative person for a living kind of thing, and, and that's something we discuss, you know, how do you define creativity? At what point does creativity kick in, you know, in depending on the process you're doing, you know? Um, so that's all really fascinating stuff. But in fact... Let's go back, cast our minds back to when you were an engineer, mm. right? And, you know, I've, I've been listening to your little mini podcast and reading stuff, and I bought, bought your book, mate, bought your book. Uh, and it's this really fascinating thing where there you were uh, doing the engineering stuff, and you felt that you had been promoted beyond your ability. You felt like... Oh my God! They're going to find me out. I'm I'm a complete fraud. I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Why have they put me in this position? Why are they all listening to me? And it was starting to crush you. Mm. It was starting, you know, giving you literally sleepless nights and that kind of stuff. And you and you, it sounds to me like you literally had a water cooler moment where you bumped into one of your female colleagues who was in a similar kind of position, and you kind of confessed to one another and said, "Oh, that's what you think too, is it? That's how you feel too." Tell us about that moment, what built up to that moment. And then, you know, that must have been like a bolt from the blue, you know, an absolute kind of eureka moment for you. Tell us about that, Claire. So it all started the day I got my degree result. So I, I knew there were bits of engineering I was good at and bits I was frankly really quite pants at, yeah? Yeah. And I got a first. And my wow. first response on getting, and I won the Faculties Engineer of the Year Award as well. Crikey. My first response to both of those was, oh, it's because I was a woman. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Not, yeah, I earned that. I mean, I worked my backside off for five years. Yeah. So you thought they'd gone soft on you? Basically. Yeah. Wow. So that didn't help at all. And then it was like, okay, well, I only got a first because my German was so good. And so all the project work and I had to do a thesis in Germany, in German, about a cavitation on <laughs> impeller plates on turbines, as you do. Um, in German. In German. So, you know, oh, I only got a first because of that. So I had all my excuses. And then I got into my mm. engineering roles and I was okay. Then I got promoted to senior engineer very early. And I could see the guys around me who thought their name was on the job going, it's because she's got boobs. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I felt that vibe and I looked in the mirror and went, all right. Yeah. And that yeah. imposter syndrome kicked in. I, I was one of the first people in Europe to be trained in Six Sigma, you know, across all industries. Yeah. Well, it's because I'm a girl. 
yeah (laughs) it wasn't they're not stupid yeah but that's what I was telling myself I had no idea that this thing had a name or that there was anything I could do about it and it got to the stage where I was changing how I behaved in order to fit in becoming less and less of myself Mm. um it was a very high energy environment with a lot of negativity part of my job was to go and stop the production line which cost two thousand dollars a minute to do yeah so i had to be really confident in what i was saying yeah yeah yeah. get you into a lot of trouble if you'd messed up Mm. and the guys didn't like it because then they would get penalized on their bonuses so it was a very Mm. it was a difficult environment to flow in you had yeah. to be quite angry and aggressive. I loved that adrenaline rush. Mm. Yeah, there came a point where I had to leave because I didn't like who it was turning me into. God, yeah. But that was partly driven by imposter syndrome. And the day that the only other female engineer and I had a chat about it, we both sat there and went, me too, and then never discussed it again. We went wow. straight back to pushing it down because it didn't have a name. Yeah, 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 yeah. It didn't have it didn't have the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I ended up leaving engineering. I took a sabbatical, went traveling in South America and studied Spanish because I needed to get away from mm. everything that was happening as a result of that imposter syndrome. You know, there was mass mm. me too running, which yeah, yeah. is as prolific for me had I been more confident. Yeah. Mm. Really, I, as a job, I have to say, it sounded like it was an absolute poison chalice of a job. Goodness me, crikey. <laughs> uh, blame her. It was her fault. You know. Uh, the other thing is that I'm kind of getting a vibe here, that uh, because this is something I've, I've kind of heard before in industrial and business environments, most especially from women, where there is just this undercurrent where if a woman gets promoted above a man, and obviously I'm generalizing here, there are some businesses that have made enormous strides to eliminate this kind of attitude. But is that something that rings true for you in your experience, that basically this is something that uh, that kind of um, feeling that you're not wanted in that position, that you're resented in that position, that that is something that's particularly experienced by women, Claire? So we, I've actually got research that proves this, and I see it in my clients. So when I ran the 2019 imposter syndrome research study, one of the things that we found was that women felt they had to doubly prove that they were worthy mm. of a leadership role compared to a male doesn't mean that's what the organization wanted but it's what the woman felt and so they perpetuated it the other thing that we found in the research is that if they got promoted into that senior role particularly if it was c-suite they would suddenly start behaving like an alpha male in order to fit in with the rest it's like yay got this t-shirt from my engineering days yeah (laughs) Yeah. is i was the alpha male female engineer because that was the environment so we change how we show up we change who we are in ways that create massive internal conflict Mm. some organizations are doing brilliantly Mm. a lot of them particularly if there have been rumors of quotas that destroys the credibility of female or minority group leaders the other thing is, you're talking there about a particular study, 2019 imposter syndrome study, which 
some people must be listening thinking you're making that up surely what <laughs> it's a, but it's a real thing it's tell real us thing, about actually. tell us about this because obviously this is pre this is a great prequel to you then writing your most recent book it's it's it was caused by writing the book so i started writing ditching imposter syndrome in early 2019 i'd been mm. nagged by friends and colleagues but for about 10 years to write it yeah. and it's like oh how do i take all of this and put it into a process that's what I call pajama ready. Yes, right. people can be at home 11 o'clock at night in their PJs in bed and it still works without yeah. having to phone me up to say, what did this mean, Claire? Yeah. Uh, my phone number is not in the book, just in case anyone's worrying. <laughs> <laughs> I do know authors who do that. I'm like, no. No, no. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so I thought, right, well, where's the latest research? And I particularly wanted UK-based research. And there wasn't any. I thought, well, I really want some data behind what I'm about to say. Yeah. So I ran a 2,000 person research study. We did qualitative interviews, did the research study, quantitative study, did qualitative interviews to find out why behind the answers. I've got a research master's. I was head of market research for Dyson. Yeah. I know what I need to know about designing a great study. Um, yeah. White paper, ditchingimpostorsyndrome.com forward slash research, if anybody wants to have a look. Brilliant. We needed to know what's the impact. And it was really shocking. We found out it's one of three hidden drivers of the gender pay gap. Really? Yep. Wow. Yeah. Hadn't expected that one, but it's obvious when you think about it, yeah? Yeah, yeah. You know, and we've got data now behind how many women each year are holding back on speaking up with their controversial ideas or being mm. visible or stepping up for opportunities mm. to shine or even going for promotions that they know inside they can do and then they resent it when somebody else gets it, yeah? Yeah, yeah. All because of imposter syndrome. Yeah. Uh, amazing, amazing. So let's get there now because uh, I think that this book you've written is an important book. And deserves to be read by a lot of people. I mean, I'm reading it out of interest because I've, as I've talked about in the last show, I've realised, oh, I've got a little bit of twang of imposter syndrome myself. My curiosity that is I don't have any imposter syndrome about starting something. The imposter syndrome comes in at the, the far end when people start praising me for what I've done, which is kind of like, how does that work? But, you know, we could talk about that some other time. But it, it got me realising that, well, okay, here's a book that at least for me is going to be a starting point for my own journey to understanding what's going on there. And there's a lot to do with kind of uh, problems of self-esteem, self-worth, upbringing stuff, yada, 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 you know. Uh, these things are, are never entirely easy to get to the bottom of. But at least uh, I think for anyone, a book like yours gives them a solid grounding and a solid beginning you know his well you know start your search here apart from anything else and i think for people who are in positions of responsibility i think it's you know i, I don't want to big up your book too much but go and buy the book folks seriously um now and also you've done, i've been listening to kind of the mini podcast that very hats off as a fellow podcaster hats off to your mini podcast brilliantly done clear lovely little things um and your enthusiasm and desire to help people conquer this problem just comes across in spades so this is obviously, as you've described, this is something that you've experienced. You're not just coming coming along clinically. Oh, what should I write about next? Oh, imposter syndrome. This is something you've 
lived. This is something you've experienced. This is something you've had to overcome. So you're personally invested in this subject mm-hmm. matter. So go on and tell us about the book, the inspiration behind it, your, your the methods you've used to kind of approach organ because there's a lot of material, right? How how do you set, set about organizing that material, categorizing it, and making it possible to convey that value to the readers? So the book is built on nearly well. Back then, it was 16 years of specialising in this. You know, working mm-hmm. with senior leaders, working with people who were on a mission to make a difference, who mm-hmm. knew they were secretly getting in their own way, and. Yeah. It's so hard, as I know you know from the author world, what's harder is what to leave out rather than what to include. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the way I look at it is one person, one problem, one book. Okay. So I wrote the book's promise first. I knew the title and I knew it had to be ditch because I work with action takers, not feel a little bit better about. Yeah. The people in my tribe are the ones who are out there going, I'm just going to do something about this now. What do I do? Yeah. Yeah. So ditching helped people understand it was a process. Yeah. Yeah. Then the promise was how to finally feel good enough and become the leader you were born to be. Mm. So once I had those, I knew the start point of the book because just like a novel, you can start the story at any point. You don't always Mm. say, so Claire was born. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew the start point. I knew the end point promise. And then I used my process that I call walking the plank. To look at, well, what are the key steps somebody needs to go through to go from recognizing I might have imposter syndrome, which was my chosen start point, to, Mm. whoa, I've just taken the next step up on my leadership journey. And and leadership isn't a job title. It's something that comes from within. Mm. So I knew the rough steps. Then the way I map out a book is on my lounge floor with post-its of different colors. Fantastic. (laughs) So for each step, right. What do they need to have learned? What do they need? Which light bulbs does somebody need to have had? Which tools will help them get that? Which self-mentoring questions would help them get there? Mm, mm. So I lay all of that out. Then I head to Scrivener, (laughs) which is where I do all my organizing and my typing. But then I have to start looking at for everything I'm writing, does this guide them on that journey? Brilliant thing from German, you'll know, um, Der Hortefaden, the red thread. When I wrote my thesis in Germany, I had a fantastic... PhD student who was my tutor on it and everything I wrote he was like where's your red thread where's your red thread really rammed it into me so now anything I write like a book has to have the red thread and for each section I had to ask myself does this keep them on the red thread or does it take them off on a tangent that means I might lose them yeah yeah and it's so hard it's like they're like my babies and losing a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then you're like, yeah. well, fine, that's a podcast episode. Yeah. So this was how I do it. And then I literally wrote it. I had my beta readers. I had my editor. Um, more beta readers because you really have to, you know, they ne- I need to know that they understand what I'm saying if mm. they're not living in my head. Yeah, absolutely. So that was basically the process. And why I wrote it was... <laughs> I'd been nagged enough. I also knew that I'd get very cross if somebody else did. Yeah, 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 yeah. But most importantly, there are only so many people I can personally help. Yeah. And I wanted something out there because I saw there was so much out there about imposter syndrome that was 
well-intentioned advice that can keep people mm. stuck or even make it worse mm. and I thought well at least if that's out there and it's the price of a pizza and if they just work through it step by step it changes their life forever yeah, yeah. yeah which readers have told me yeah. then my job is done yeah absolutely let's I mean let's cut to the chase get to some real basics because as I said last episode I talked a bit about imposter syndrome as I'd experienced it but it's clear that different people can experience imposter syndrome in different ways. If you, how, in a sense, in a nutshell, for the uninitiated, because there are some people who just don't suffer from imposter syndrome you know, and go through life blissfully unaware, how would you define imposter syndrome? What kind of things should people look out for in recognising that they themselves might be suffering from imposter syndrome? So it's different to self-doubt. This is one of the things we found in the research study. So self-doubt right. is about what we can and can't do. That's our confidence, yeah? yeah? I have yeah. these skills. I can do a presentation. I can write a book. I can create mm -hmm. a podcast. That is self-doubt and confidence. Imposter syndrome takes it that level deeper if it's about who I am. How do, mm -hmm. I, how do I see myself as being? It's an identity level thing. Mm -hmm. And it has a secret source of what if they find out. So I describe <laughs> yeah. it as the secret fear of being found out as not good enough or a fraud. Mm. The mm. other way I describe it with my clients is it's that fear of being judged by others the way we're judging ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's neat. I like that. Thank yeah. <laughs> now that's clever because um, that really resonates with me mm. because I realized, you know, when I, after my breakdown at the beginning of this year, I realized I had loathed myself for mm. 50 years probably. And so, yeah, that ties in neatly with me because if I loathe myself that much, why would anyone else not loathe me, right? Exactly. If I if I thought I was that crap at everything, why would anyone else think that I wasn't crap at stuff, you know? Yeah, and because this is down at that identity level, logic doesn't fix it. You yeah. cannot rationalise your way out of a bout of imposter syndrome. Yeah. And it is that that difference between evaluating and judging, because we all know if we want to grow and improve, then we have to assess our performance. What did I do well? What would I do differently next time? And sometimes mm. we might have to have that scary thing called feedback. Mm. This is all at the evaluation, the skills, capabilities, confidence. Mm. Imposter syndrome goes from evaluating to judging. So, okay, yeah. I made that mistake in the presentation, which means I am rubbish at presenting. And what if my boss finds out <laughs> I'm never allowed to do a client pitch again and then I die in a gutter? Yeah. yeah. It takes our performance. It makes it personal. And that means mm. we feel shame. Mm. So we work hard to hide it. We, we put in more hours. We overcompensate. We have poor boundaries. We overgive. Nobody mm. else on the planet knows what our 3am self-talk is. And we think there's nothing we can do about it, which is just mm. like, that's why I wrote the book, to be honest, is you don't have to lie there at three o'clock in the morning feeling like it's all awful. There are yeah. some really practical things you can do to rewire the neural pathways in your brain, to yeah. reprogram the cellular level reactions in your body so that you can start turning that inner dialogue into a mm. gentle and genuine cheerleader. Mm. Start feeling safe to take off those secret masks and become who you were always meant to be. This is also interesting because this is where my brain lights up. Oh, there's a bit of neuroscience coming in here, isn't it? The plasticity of the yeah. brain. That just because you're one way 
today and feeling one way or behaving one way today doesn't necessarily mean you need to do you you, you're not condemned to that for the rest of your life it's possible to kind of rewire the brain isn't it yeah absolutely Uh, through practice you know it's not something that's instantaneous although there have been some startling experiments done you know but generally speaking it's a matter of you think of all the years that you've repeatedly said to yourself i'm crap i'm crap i'm crap 50 times a day well, if you turn that around and, you know, for the next 50 years, say, I'm not crap, I'm not crap, I'm not crap. <laughs> Do you know what? The likelihood is something's going to happen to the wiring in your brain, you know, that, that your, your red light is going to go through amber, maybe to green, you know. So this is obviously something that you've learned along the way. And, your, you know, your engineering background, neuroscience is fascinating, a vast subject all in its own. So we can't dwell on this for too long. But this is obviously something that you've brought to this and that you're, you're you're passionate about because like, this is real science. Like, this yeah. isn't woo-woo. I'm not making this up. This is real science at work here. Tell us about that. Claire. You can start to rewire your brain in 60 seconds. And what I did is I created techniques that are based on neuroscience, psychology, engineering logic, ancient wisdom, demystified, all of it in together. Mm. It was so simple. You can do them in a minute, three or four times a day. After a week, mm. that inner radio station sounds different. Yeah. But the key is it's not just about rewiring the brain. You need to rewire the body's addiction to mm. the things like the adrenaline, the cortisol, stress hormones that fire off when you think yeah. worry thought. And this is where the slight woo comes in, but it's engineer approved. You then <laughs> need to look at your energy. So if I'm looking at that, what I talked about with the koshas, the energy body, yeah. If you clear something consciously in the thinking mind, so you rewire the neural pathways mm. and you reset the cellular level addictions to mm. the biochemical reactions, mm. if you've not also cleared it in your energy body, it just comes back. Right. So the processes I teach do all of that so that it's a permanent shift up. Yeah. Mm. And particularly if you keep track of this over time, you'll really notice your thoughts change your Mm. behaviors change and you know you've cracked it when other people say to you what have you been doing (laughs) i want some of that yeah yeah yeah. you know three weeks they've done research studies on the power of gratitude for example yeah yeah that show in three weeks it can create breakthroughs for mild to moderate depression yeah absolutely i mean because i've been doing an awful lot of reading around all sorts of stuff in the last year and there is some astonishing stuff out there, I, I, and I have to put my hand up and say there was probably some bits of the of the bookshelves, you know, uh, uh, to do with self help and stuff that I probably just avoided, thinking eh, it's not for me. But now it's like, oh, do you know what? There's some interesting stuff in there. My attitude has become, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. I found that in pretty much every book I've read, and I've read a lot in the last year. There's at least one or two really good, solid ideas. They, the author may not have expressed them in a way that I would have liked, let's say, but it's like, yeah, okay, that's worth kind of exploring further as, as a thought. And obviously some of the stuff you're saying there is like, yeah, do you know what? I'm with you on this. I'm with you on this. Uh, the other thing is that uh, one of the things that I know, I think you might have mentioned in uh, one of your mini podcasts is this notion that again is very alpha male driven that do you know what if you want to be successful if you just work 27 hours in every 24 you'll make it right Mm -hmm. typical alpha male pardon my french everyone but bullshit 
right? Now, for a l- many, many years, I kind of was an alpha male and worked myself half to death. And you know what? It got me nowhere, you know, may well have provoked the onset of my cancer, who knows? And I, even as a bloke, you know, I'm a 60-year-old, very masculine bloke, and I look at this kind of, oh, yeah, the hustle, you just work hard. It excludes, first of all, it excludes so many people. Secondly, by and large, it remains unproven because one of the things that, you know, scientists would say is, yeah, wait, 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 there's laws of probability in here as well. For every, it's like there's this uh, wonderful, I think it was James Clear in his fabulous book, Atomic Habits, talked about the fact that, okay, you in the 100 meters final, you've got 10 finalists. They all line up believing they're going to win the gold medal. Their belief that they're going to win the gold medal isn't what wins them the gold medal. It's the fact that that guy is trained an extra six weeks or two hours a day to win the gold medal compared to the rest. Yeah, he's more likely to win it. You know, there's real life probability and mathematics involved here. And there's an awful lot of people who say, yeah, it's because I hustled. I really hustled. Do you know what, mate? You've you've overlooked the amount of luck you had in your circumstances. So one of the things I really like about what you're saying as well, Claire, is you kind of expose this hustle mythology, which, again, let's come back to there's an awful lot of people who aren't alpha males, right? Half the population's women for a start, right? Where that's not the answer to their problem, is it? So talk us about this, because you're really good at debunking stuff, Claire, because of your science. So one of the most important things to remember is we do our best work when we're in the zone. Yeah. Uh, if someone's a runner, they know they do their best running when they're in the zone. If we're writing and we're in the zone, it's just like we write it and we come back a week later and go, whoa, who wrote that? That's really good. Yeah. We do our worst work when we're forcing. Yes. There is a neuroscience reason for this. When we're forcing... We've triggered the fight, flight, freeze, fear response, the sympathetic nervous system. That diverts the blood flow from the prefrontal cortex at the front of your brain that does that fantastic thinking to the primal part that only cares about the saber-toothed tiger and you not. (laughs) And so we're trying to create because we're pushing, we're forcing, we're doing our work, we're exhausted. So we're using adrenaline and caffeine and sugar to get through those hours. We biologically will struggle to concentrate. We biologically will not have access to the bit of our brain that does our best work. And we end up forcing and fighting instead of flowing. Flowing doesn't mean, hey, I'm a couch potato and I'm letting life happen. No, 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 no. It means, how can I get in the zone as much as possible? How can I make sure that I'm grounded? That I'm Mm. not coming from a place of fear that's firing off all that unconscious stuff in my body that's getting in my way. Mm. And how can I make sure I've dealt with what I call from the research, the four P's of imposter syndrome, perfectionism, procrastination, project paralysis, and people pleasing, all of which drive us to push, to fall, Mm. to fight our way through the day and Mm. work those ridiculous hustle hours. So I had to take August off this year. I hadn't planned to, but I got Mm. COVID. (laughs) <laughs> oh mate, I hope you're feeling better now. I'm a lot better. Still not quite there, but it mashed me. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, literally did not have a brain. And yeah. I brought in <laughs> I brought in speaking contracts last month while I was lying in bed. Wow. So that are half my entire turnover from my business from last year. Wow. 
I was reading emails for maybe 10 minutes every three days. I did nothing. It came mm. because I'd laid foundations. Yeah, yeah? yeah, yeah. Now that doesn't mean if I do that this month, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's just going to keep coming. But I didn't hustle. And for me, it was a wonderful reminder. Sometimes when we get ourselves out of the way yeah. and we let those opportunities arrive in our path without being so blinkered by the hustle or by the to-do list that we miss them completely, mm. yeah, then the miracles happen. And I'm not being woo about this. It's simply how it shows up. The more I mm. hustle, the less success my business has. Because the other thing is, because I remember learning this when I was setting out in business many years ago. When you're really hustling, people can sense a kind of desperation. Oh. We've right? all done it. We've all done it. <laughs> Whereas now, I mean, again, I'm fortunate. Hey, I I had cancer and a breakdown, and I've now I'm busier than I've been in years, mm. right? And like you, it's kind of like I because I didn't have the energy to go hustle and oh my god, desperation marketing and oh god, oh my why how many hours should I be on social media every day? And you know, because let's face it, when you're running a business, particularly a small business nowadays, there are a lot of challenges just keeping up with uh, should I be on Twonk or whatever the latest social media thing is, you know? So uh, should I be twitching or discording or whatever these other things are? And, well, hang on a minute. I went and looked at that thing. They all seem to be 12-year-olds there. Do I want to be marketing to 12-year-olds? I don't think I do. Where can I find my – all these, all this stuff that when you're running a business, you can easily suffer mm. kind of overload from. And it was almost like the minute I just relaxed and like, do you know what, whatever, I'm just going to plod on, do my work, do the bits I do, and work has come in. And in the middle of it all, hey, I made this insane decision to start a brand new podcast, right, you know, with, with no guarantees of anything other than just this trust in the universe, if you like, you know, that that if people like what I do, th that's the other thing with the imposter syndrome that's interesting that I've overcome. It's like, I've realized now, because I've been podcasting for quite a few years, I'm pretty good at this. You know, I'm not perfect, but people seem to like my voice. They seem to like the attitude I have when I'm interviewing people and stuff. And just, well, that's who I am. And I'm just going to trust to that and people seem to be responding so this is really interesting uh, as you describe claire that this hustle notion that is you know it's out there everywhere it's on the bookshelves it's on social media it's on youtube and you get these people with their flash suits and what have you up on stage yeah 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 and i'm not going to name any names because i think we know who some of these people are no, can I just and say, yes i love gary vinerchuk i'm not him and if i try yeah. to pretend to be him I'm going to Absolutely. Yeah. Him and others, him and a number of others where you think, good for you, mate. I'm really glad it worked for you. But it's this assumption that just because it worked for you, it's automatically going to work for me. I'm a different person. My life is different. My health is different. My circumstances are different. And I think the thing is that um, what's fascinating about your tackling this subject matter because you also you've got to you run a course alongside the book as well for people who want that don't you to kind of fast track the implementation of you know what they're learning what in fact tell us about that what do you think is the benefit for someone for also kind of signing up for the course as well as just you know buying the book implementation 
(laughs) is we might read a book, we might read a few chapters, go, oh, that's brilliant. And then we just get to the stage where the book's going to create a breakthrough. And that little voice inside goes, run! (laughs) (laughs) If you've signed up to a course, then so you've got my inner critic boot camp, for example, which is really that grounded, right, let's get this inner critic stuff sorted so firstly you then get a blend of different learning styles you've got the videos the audios the guided visualizations the worksheets Mm. the self-mentoring exercises so there's something Mm. for everybody not Mm. just the auditory learners who benefit most from a book Mm. you will always have access to you know, a certain amount of time for my monthly Q&A so you can get hot seat mentoring you'll have Mm. a forum or a Facebook group behind it for accountability it's the difference Mm. between inspiration and implementation because yeah. i can i can inspire in a book yeah. but i can't force you to do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely and on a course so for example i'm about to launch the next round of my imposter syndrome first aiders for right. people who want to be able to help other people in the workplace with imposter syndrome mm. with that there's a strong claire is here for you element yeah, they get yeah. the Claire time, they get the group time to be able to actually implement, to have somebody that will do the kind of like the pom-pom dance yeah. when they say, I was in this meeting and I did this differently and, and it was great. And we get mm. it, we understand it. It takes mm. an enormous amount of willpower to work right the way through a book, implement mm. everything step by step and get that result. Mm. So the additional programs offer you the support if you're not quite up there in the 1% that's got that level of willpower, but you still yeah, yeah. want to get those outcomes. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll come back to quoting again from James Clear's brilliant book, Atomic Habits, where he talks about the fact that actually, if you're te- attempting to do something and make progress in something, the less willpower it requires, the more likely you are to succeed because it is overcoming that inertia. So if you've got someone there helping you overcome that inertia, it makes everything so much easier. So, well, yeah, so I, it all I, makes sense. Exactly. I've even cheated on that with the Inner Critic boot camp, boot camp because it's a six week program and each week you just have to add in one habit. That's it. Right. Yeah. All the videos and things are there to help, but just one habit that takes minutes mm. a day. Yeah. You do it at your beginner level. Then in a few months time, you come back and you reset and you do the next level habit. Then you yeah. can come back and reset and do the ninja habit. So it's just yeah. one tiny thing each week, which if we've made that commitment and said, yes, mm. I want to do this. I want this outcome to do one thing a week with full support isn't a big ask. Absolutely, absolutely. Of course, the obvious question is because I, I look at the book and think, well, I made the decision and I bought the book because I thought, yeah, that I'm going to find that really useful. Did you have a specific audience in mind when you wrote this? I've upset a lot of people who aren't female business leaders. <laughs> <laughs> Will it still work for me? They say, yes. So why does it stay to become the leader you were born to be? Because you have to write it for one group. If I try to write this for everybody on the planet, yeah. yeah if I look at Afghanistan at the moment and the heartbreaking situation there, they, yeah. they don't need this book. Yeah. yeah. If I look at people who are already immensely successful, they don't need this book. They would want to work with me in a different way. So I yeah. had to make that decision so that the stories I was telling and the examples I was giving and the exercises I was using were really relevant to them but didn't yeah. exclude anybody else who also wanted to benefit. Yeah. yeah. I've got some, some of my best, re- my favorite, you know, first readers were men. 
Yeah. Really? Because of my engineering background, it means it's fluff free. So it's accessible yeah, yeah. to people who have got a more masculine style of learning as well as the feminine style of learning. Mm. So yeah, it's really hard that niching when you write a book, who is this for? Because you cannot even Oprah, even absolutely script, yeah, cannot be for everybody. If you're pleasing, if you're trying to please everybody, you're going to be beige. And I knew yeah. that I needed to be Marmite. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I like that Marmite or mm. Vegemite for our Antipodean friends. <laughs> so, Claire, I mean, you've obviously done, been doing an immense amount despite COVID. Bless you. What comes next after after imposter syndrome? I mean, or do you see this as being something that's going to keep you occupied for a while? Or do you, do you already have plans for the next thing down the line? So I know you'll get this, Henry, and, and lots of you listening will understand this too. When we're running our own businesses as creative entrepreneurs, it's so hard to stick to one thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, give me what's next, please. You know. Yeah. And the reason ditching imposter syndrome has been so successful is I did what my meditation master calls, you hold the match. You don't just strike a match and go, good luck, fire. You hold it until the tinder catches and then you blow until the kindling catches and then wait till the logs have caught. That takes so much longer than we as entrepreneurs want to wait for. So because I need to keep creating and expanding and growing, what I've actually been doing over the last, gosh, almost a year now, is creating and leading certification programs to teach other people to do what I do. This is my dream right now is... Remove the taboo is a campaign I'm about to start running in the autumn to remove the taboo around imposter syndrome. And it's getting out the imposter syndrome first aiders into organizations who can be there with more than tea and sympathy, but with the practical strategies to rewire your brain that help with anxiety and everything else that comes with imposter syndrome and the certified imposter syndrome mentors. The whole thing built around my natural resilience method program framework. So I'm also next year starting train the trainer program so that other people can be qualified and licensed to go and teach this work. You're building an empire, Claire. You're building an empire. I'm building a legacy. Right. Yeah, because when it becomes something that can then keep growing independently of me, then I can be the figurehead and I can work with people to improve things and to grow, but mm. actually the reach of the work becomes so much bigger. If I keep yeah, yeah. this to myself, and it doesn't mean I'm saying, hey, everybody go and teach the book. You know, people have to be properly trained and certified and yeah. licensed and copyrighted. Yeah. yeah. But if I can get teams of people out there, mm. the reach and impact that this work can have grows exponentially compared sure. to if I try and keep it all to myself. We could yak for hours more. It's absolutely clear. It's been a real pleasure hearing you talk about what you do and your enthusiasm is just, I feel like I've had a, a, an enthusiasm shower. It's fantastic. <laughs> absolutely wonderful. Tell people, where can people find you online, Claire? I'm at clairyosa.com. You can find all sorts of stuff about ditching imposter syndrome, you know, at, as you would guess at ditchingimpostorsyndrome.com. The place I hang up most on social media is LinkedIn, but I love Instagram right. as well. And at the moment, there's only one of me that does vary sometimes <laughs> <laughs> one, no, with fake profiles. Yeah, yeah. There are all sorts of resources there, um, including things like how to avoid the five most common bits of advice, mistakes that people give when they're helping people with imposter syndrome. There are videos, obviously links to the books, 
but it's there to help. So please go and dive in. There are kind of thousands of pages of resources. Loads of stuff. And a whole series of, as I mentioned earlier, folks, the, the little podcasts on, they're just like 10 or 15 minutes each, aren't they? On yeah. on Apple Podcasts is where I found them. Yeah. Just by putting in Claire Yosa and up, up this came. Like, oh, oh, it goes with the book. Nice branding, by the way. Nice branding. Coming Thank from you. the graphic designer. Um, but yeah, it's worth seeking. And just a visit to, Claire's uh, website, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, it's an education in itself. And I'm not saying that. Like, it is an education in itself. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Claire, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm sure you're going to be coming back on this show for us to talk more in depth about more stuff in the future. I'd love to. It's been a joy hanging out with you, Henry. Long overdue. You too. And let's get a real life coffee together, for goodness sake. It's about time. How long have we waited? Six years or something? We need an EU VAT action reunion. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to end the show. Good Lord. We changed EU law between us all. Yeah, it was incredible. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was astonishing. We achieved yeah. what we'd been told by the UK government was impossible. Absolutely. So, people, this stuff works, trust me. And I'm going to report back on my own experience of reading your book and doing the work, and you know, because I've signed up for your newslettery thing. So, I'll be able to come back on and talk about uh, the experience I've had in conquering my own strange kind of imposter syndrome. Thanks so much, Claire. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Henry. Don't forget to stay tuned for Relaxation on the Beach with Henry. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well. This is Henry, and welcome to Relaxation on the Beach, Episode 5. Today, we're going to try something different again. We're going to have a go at a practice called noting, which basically is a way of making you aware of the fact that you are not your thoughts. Your thoughts are things that can arise and die away and you don't have to be dragged hither and thither by them. You can remain focused and concentrated and not get bothered by or pulled away by your thoughts. So, let's start at the beginning, where we always do. Find a nice comfortable position, sitting, standing, lying down, with your eyes closed or half open, as you prefer. And as ever, we're going to start with a couple of really nice big breaths. We're going to breathe in to the count of four and make the out breaths nice and long after a pause at the top. So, 
You comfortable? You ready? And breathing in, two, three, four, and pause, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and in, two, three, four, pause, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So settle into your breathing. Just nice and soft and gentle and regular. And what I'd like you to do today is to focus on your home base which may well be, like my favourite, the sensation of the breath entering and leaving the nostrils. Or it could be the sensation of where you're sitting or lying. could even be a noise, actually. It could be the sound of the waves on the soundtrack here. Or if you're listening not through headphones, it might be the hum of your fridge or an air conditioning unit. Doesn't matter. Just fixating on something that you can come back to. And most people find the breath as it comes in and out of the nose the easiest thing. Okay. Now, today, I'm going to leave you in peace a couple of times. Because I just want you to lie very relaxed, focusing on the breath. And if a thought arises, doesn't matter what kind of thought, just mentally note it by saying to yourself, thinking. If it's a worrying thought, you might note it by saying, worrying. Or it could be a physical sensation, like itching. Just make a mental note. Come back to the breath. Alright? So, whatever the kind of thought is, don't have to get wrapped up in the specifics of it. Whenever a thought arises, just note it and let it go and come back to the breath. All right. See how you get on with that.
great. How are you getting on there? You're finding that interesting? Are you finding it interesting how many or how few thoughts might be arising? And just kind of looking at them float by and noting that you're thinking and letting it go and coming back to the breath until another thought arises. This is really good for you, by the way. Great for concentration. Okay, let's carry on patiently sitting with this or lying with this. And again, do some noting and note what kind of thought it is. You know, not necessarily whether it's a good thought or a bad thought, but think about, are you ruminating about something? Are you trying to solve a problem? Are you fantasizing about something? Or some other thinking pattern? Are you cross about something, annoyed about something? Whatever it is, just be gentle with yourself and when a thought arises, just note it with kindness, maybe even with a little smile. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about that thing again. Well, it could be. Oh, I meant to pick up some eggs on the way home. Well, never mind. Whatever it is, gently note the nature of the thought. Let it go. Come back to the breath. Off you go.
Excellent, you're doing really well here. So keep coming back to the breath and stay relaxed. And for this last bit, when you note your thought, also add to the note, is it a note about the past, the present, or something that may or may not happen in the future? See how you get on with that, just for the last couple of minutes. And always come back to your gentle breath. Well done, good job. Okay, now relax. Focus again on your breathing. Now that's practice that you can take into your daily life when thoughts arise. Noting what kind of thought they are and letting them go and come back to focus on whatever task you should be focusing on at that time. So now, let yourself have a bit of a stretch, a bit of a waggle of your fingers and toes if you like. Slowly open your eyes. Maybe have a yawn and a stretch. And get ready to go back to your day. Thank you for spending this time with me. And until next time, be well. This podcast was produced by Henry Hyde. Copyright Henry Hyde, 2021. 
If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing via your normal podcast player such as Apple, Google, Spotify or Amazon. You can also support the show directly via our coffee page at ko-fi.com slash inside your head, all one word. That's coffee.com slash inside your head, where you can make donations in multiples of just £3, the equivalent of a cup of coffee. All donations are gratefully received and go directly to the production costs of the show. Thank you.